Hi, everyone. Radhika Jones here, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. With award season in full swing, there's no better time to become a Vanity Fair subscriber. Let our editors take you behind the scenes of this year's nominated films, from prestige indies to major blockbusters, plus exclusive coverage of Hollywood's biggest events. Visit VanityFair.com today and save 10% on a yearly subscription for a limited time with promo code OSCARS. That's VanityFair.com, promo code OSCARS, for 10% off a year of insights and access you won't find anywhere else. Subscribe today while this offer lasts through March 31st, 2024. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And... The Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, and I'm here with Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. And that's it. It's just you and me right now. <laughs> oh, my God. Just the two of us. What I know. But we but we have a uh, an action-packed show ahead of us, so don't worry. Rich, you will not hear from Richard, but you'll hear an interview that I did with Karina Longworth and Vanessa Hope, the co-hosts of Vanity Fair's new podcast, Love is a Crime, which hopefully you're already subscribed to. But if not, you'll listen to this conversation and decide you must subscribe. Uh, and then Joanna will have an interview with Jen Statsky, who is one of the creators and showrunners of Hacks, a show we have talked about many times on this show and is nominated for many Emmys. Um, but first, Joanna, you and I just get to talk about the news of the day. What a treat. <laughs> what a delight. What a joy. Yeah, and I just want to say, if you're tempted, if you're like, oh, listen, I've heard all the Hacks interviews. I'm here to tell you, Jen told me things I'd never heard before. So stick around yeah. for, for Jen. Okay, all right. ready for a tease of that. <laughs> um and I do feel like Richard is spiritually with us because I wanted to start by talking about the White Lotus, which you guys yeah. talked about on Still Watching in a special episode. I love it when it's like you guys like get a, a siren goes off in your back cave and you're like, we must, we must discuss the show on HBO to the, to the White Lotus. <laughs> to the Still Watching. Yeah, no, the Still Watching, we got a lot of emails and tweets from people who were bummed we weren't covering White Lotus and uh, it was just a scheduling thing. Otherwise, it's absolutely up our alley and we would have. And I, and I kind of miss that experience, that like granular week to week discussion discussion with Richard and, and reading folks emails and stuff like that they always like make me better a better viewer um but we did we did one special episode here at the end uh and White Lotus like a lot of these HBO 
you know, Sunday night shows um, gained a lot of traction over over a few weeks. It didn't start mm-hmm. that way, but like Mare, like The Undoing, like there was a real ramp up of momentum. And like, towards the end, it felt like everyone, at least in my Twitter feed, uh, was watching The White Lotus. That's a very uh, select group for sure. sure. But um, but yeah. So what I mean, what did you think of of the season as a whole and and of the finale, Kitty? I had such, I watched all the White Lotus in basically a week. I was going to say that it's been such a great uh, ding to the binge model, the way that the White Lotus and Mary Beast Town and, and Loki, uh, also in Disney Plus, like have all just like taken over week to week conversation. Uh, but I did watch the whole thing in a week, so I wasn't totally following <laughs> the rules there. Um, but I enjoyed White Lotus so much. I've enjoyed so much reading everyone's writing about it, including listening to you and Richard. I'm still watching, reading Richard's kind of uh, piece that just said the White Lotus was always going to end this way. Uh, I've enjoyed thinking about like criticism of the show, um, which, uh, uh, Mike White did an interview with Vulture in which he referenced a Vulture writer's oh. tweet about it, about, uh, you know, if the people you're satirizing are enjoying your satire, then what? Uh, which is something I haven't really wrapped my head around. It's just such, <laughs> I, a, it's such yeah. a rich text. I just need to, I mean, I think usually we we try to sort of promote our own <laughs> outlet. But <laughs> I gotta say, Catherine's interview on Vulture uh, with Mike White is one of the best like showrunner interviews I've ever read because Catherine asked some great like sort of pressing questions and Mike White gave great answers. You know what I mean? Like he didn't, he didn't skirt, uh, you know, the criticism, which is, I think something like the headline of the piece. Anyway, it was a, is a tremendous, um, article and it's sort of rare to see a conversation like that go kind of viral. Like it did this week. Um, I was really, I was really impressed with Catherine's work there. So yeah, I would, I would really recommend folks, folks read that if they're grappling with the show, if they like it, if they don't like it, I think there's something there for everyone. And I, I hear all the criticisms and I have some of my own criticisms and I still, think it was like a tremendously interesting piece of art that we all got to digest um over the last few weeks so yeah and I had heard like before the season finale aired I had seen you know or talked to people who were arguing like it's a pandemic project like it was made as a way like you could all go to resort and get a show made and it's fun to watch these people but heads against each other where there's not a lot of depth to it but I think that this level of conversation really proves that wrong like there is so much to go into it and I don't know that it's like breaking new ground in the way it talks about like colonialism and white privilege and all this stuff, but it's thought provoking enough that I think it deserves a lot of credit for how it kind of riles you up as you watch it and makes you feel like bad, but also enjoying watching Jennifer Coolidge go off on a tangent. Like there's so much to dig into in every episode of the show. Yeah. And I want, I want to shout out one other piece that really uh, helped me shape my understanding of it, which is a Twitter thread. And I apologize, apologies for this, but um, Tom and Lorenzo is one of the best like follows on Twitter. Uh, they do a lot of like sort of like fashion critique in general, but also a lot of really uh, sharp pop culture observational stuff. And there's a great tweet thread from one of them just sort of talking about uh, the character of Armand played by Marie Bartlett um, and, and sort of the, the psychology of the, of the white uh, middle-aged gay man um, who, you know, who the tweeter is and who Mike White is and who this character is. And I just thought that was really revel- like an angle that I hadn't really dug into. So I thought that was really interesting. And I also want to shout out. Yeah, you should. And I also want to shout out. Um, we talked about Richard and I talked about this, but uh, Cristobal Tapia Devere is the composer, and the the work that the score is doing on this show is sort of beyond anything I've ever seen. I thought it was incredible stuff. Yeah. So yeah. it's, uh, as, as another friend of ours has said, like for all the love we've gotten to give Nicholas Bertel about the succession score, let's get the, uh, the white Lotus score hive activated. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, 
But our, uh, our excuse for bringing this up on the show is that White Lotus will probably be a big Emmy thing in a year. So we've got a while for that. Although it'll also be eligible will it? at the, well, so the, this is the question. Although I will say the SAG TV awards come much sooner. Um, so it will be fresher in minds by then. And that's, you know, like Queen's Gambit premiered probably around the same time last year. I'm trying to remember how that timing worked out, but it was kind of an early Emmy eligibility thing and it has carried on. Um, but I did want to get your read on like, do you, do you think that all this Twitter hype will translate into awards for White Lotus? That's a good question. I think that I I would guess that people will forget. I mean, Queen's Gambit, <laughs> Queen's Gambit came out. Ouch. In o- no, it's it's not nice. And it's not fair, but it's just true. Queen's Gambit came out in October, late October, and I just think that like coming out, and it, so it came out after the Emmys. Like when you come out before the ceremony, and then you have to loop again all the way back around to the next year. Mm-hmm. I just think that that's like a tough sell uh though like succession i think has done it but that's you know that that feels like more of an ongoing thing like when you have a season two coming so if mike white wants to lickety split make season two of white lotus which he says he's gonna make and season two is fresh in people's minds Mm -hmm, they mm -hmm. might go ahead and honor season one the way they should you know yeah that that would be my guess and it's i mean like i'm i don't mean that cold-heartedly i just think that that's the fact of the timeline you know so but like Jennifer Coolidge, Joanna, like oh, get this woman an Emmy. I hope so. I hope so. You know what I mean? And Murray Bartlett, I thought he was incredible after doing yeah. a lot of great TV work. But yeah, Jennifer Coolidge, fantastic. The score, like stuff like the score, you know, I think might might power through. And hopefully, like it, and it all depends on how the campaign is run. If Jennifer Coolidge, uh, who has done some phenomenal, I think, interviews around this show, uh, one with our own um, outlet, but all around, she's just been very like forthright and interesting. And so I think there there is definitely a way in which she can sort of capture spotlight. And something that, <laughs> I don't know if you remember this, but in one of our meetings before the White Lotus premiered, one of our, one of our um, lovely staff members, Caitlin Brody, was sort of high on the White Lotus before any of us had mm-hmm. seen it. And she was talking about Jennifer Coolidge and um, my only contribution to that was the fact that I know that Jennifer Coolidge is like a big hit on TikTok. People love doing impressions of Jennifer Coolidge oh. before the White Lotus, like her legally blonde stuff, like all of that. There's like a whole generation of people who have a dead on Jennifer Coolidge impression. So um, I don't know, maybe all maybe, the TikTok voters voting for Emmys or uh, I'm just saying if Jennifer <laughs> Coolidge's folks are listening right now, viral TikTok campaign for Emmy. Be the first oh to make it happen. You know, you, you know? look at her um, awards page on IMDb and it is like tragically thin. She's just not gotten awards recognition the way that I think she would deserve based on her pop culture prominence. So I think even if like the Emmys are going to be an uphill climb, like I do think she's going to get recognition for this kind of beyond what she's gotten for anything else. It's like so overdue. So that's really exciting. I think it's going to give her a lot of uh, new opportunities, which is really yeah. exciting because she like didn't want to do it. And Mike White had to like convince her to do this because she was... COVID depressed like the rest of us and didn't yeah. want to leave her house. And I didn't just want so... to go to a resort in Hawaii that I do not relate to that. <laughs> I mean, it was just, I do not go to a resort in Hawaii and then like have to put yourself out there every sure, single, sure. single day in your performance. But anyway, I'm, I'm so glad you want to talk about white Lotus because, uh, like I said, I really wish we had been talking about it more. I think there's so much more to be said about it. 
How are you feeling about a potential season two? Do you think the anthology format will uh, make the second season feel as fresh as the first one did? I think it really depends. I talked to Richard about this a little bit, but like, you know, we we have a great piece up on VF.com where folks on the staff were sort of coming up with their own dream scenarios. I think there are some elements that were missing from some of those dream scenarios, not to like knock any of our lovely colleagues. Are you but, saying um, my Myrtle Beach season wasn't fully thought out? <laughs> I just, need, I mean, like there needs to be, I think there needs to be a racial component to it that is missing from like some of the locations. And I think also you'll have a tough time because Mike White is so personally connected to this because he has like lived in Kauai. He has been the privileged white guy in Hawaii. So like, will he be able to bring that same perspective to another location? I don't know. But that being said, this reminds me a lot of like when Ryan made Ryan uh, Johnson made knives out and all of a sudden we're just like, yeah, give us an excuse to create a fantastic ensemble. Give us an excuse to watch a Connie Britton, a Steve Zahn or whatever every week. Mm -hmm. Like give us an excuse to let Mike White assemble another fantastic cast and do it all again in a different way. Um, I think, I think it could be really fun. It's just one of those things where like, this felt so personal. So like, yeah. are the other seasons going to feel as personal, you know? Yeah. I, I, in that, um, Vulture interview, he said he didn't have a writer's room on this. It was just him. Yep. And I don't know if this is like really playing with fire, but it would be interesting if he did get a writer's room for a second season and, you know, found people who are familiar with wherever they set a second season of it and maybe build it from there. But I defer to Mike White on all things because obviously he's made something amazing and I would not dream to tell him how to do it <laughs> for a second time <laughs> around. <laughs> Um, I want to say that also on Still Watching This Week, uh, speaking of like one-off things that we're doing, Anthony Brezikin and I are doing one episode about uh, the Marvel animated series, What If. We're not doing like the full court press on it, but we're doing one episode. And then I think Richard and I are coming back for Nine Perfect Strangers. So, you know, we're we're, we're hitting the, the summer entertainment where we can. Um, yeah. Here we go. Yeah. Yeah. We've got a, a couple more weeks before we start talking about all the movies from festival season that uh, will be varying levels of difficult for everyone else to see for a long while. So while we all have juicy TV to chew over that's on all of our houses right away, no uh, masks required. We can, we can enjoy that. Um, well, speaking of things you can watch at home, should we talk about the movies that are supposedly coming out in the near future and what the hell is going on there? Because, uh, it did feel like last week, uh, when Venom, I think moved back two or three weeks, like a pretty short period of time. I think a lot of us were racing for like, Oh God, it's March 2020 all over again. Everything is going to get delayed. That hasn't really happened yet, but there's been a lot of like shortened windows between theatrical release and VOD. Uh, COVID cases are obviously not great in the United States. Um, what's your read, Joanna, on what, it, what all these delays are leading to? And are we going to get even more big ones coming? I think people keep looking to Disney, like follow the lead of Disney or, or like whatever Disney decides feels like a big deal, uh, you know, given the slice of the market that they own. Uh, Free Guy, I think, did pretty well this last weekend, like comparatively, I suppose. Um, better, I think, than they were anticipating. But I think, you know, Disney had this great, uh, this big earnings call where they talked to shareholders and then, of course, like reporters listen in and report back. And uh, a lot of folks were expecting that Shang-Chi, which is opening the beginning of September very soon, would be moved. And it's not being moved, but they're trying out what they called an experiment, which is a controversial word to use, and we'll get to that in a second, but they're trying out an experiment where they're releasing in a 45-day window, so it'll be in theaters for 45 days, and then it will be available online, probably in their like sort of premium tier offering on Disney+. Plus. Uh, something that I thought was really interesting is someone did an analysis of 
what percentage of the box office Marvel movies make in the first 45 days. And it's something Mm. like 90 something percent, 80 to 90 something percent. Wow. So it's a smart move. However, the way, I mean, the way it was expressed, Bob, Bob Chapik, relatively new CEO of Disney, um, was the way he called an experiment felt not great to folks who are really anticipating the first, you know, Asian lead in a Marvel movie. Um, Simu Liu, the, uh, the lead actor himself, like took to Twitter to take exception, uh, with the language. Uh, and so like, it's a pity, like Marvel obviously is like a box office leader. So it's something that we look to for an example, it shouldn't be the end all be all, but it's something we look to. And the fact that the movies that they're putting out right now are like the female led movies and the like, you know, the non-white lead, mm-hmm. non-white male leads, it feels, disapp- I will say disappointing because we've waited a long time. Obviously we've had like Captain Marvel and Black Panther, but we've waited a long time for this to be like the new normal of Marvel and for it to come at a time when understandably people aren't going to the movie theaters. And so Disney is sort of frantically trying to figure out how to make these feel as big as they want to feel. And then, you know, I would argue with Black Widow, not quite getting there. And I don't know what's going to happen with Shang-Chi, but um, we'll see. But I don't know. What what do you think, Kitty? I mean, it is more or less, I mean, it is coincidence that Marvel is moving into this period where they've got all of these uh, movies not led by white men and they are coming at the same time as this global pandemic. Like Mm -hmm. those two things do not have anything to do with each other, but the argument of whether or not they need to take more care with these movies in terms of how they bring them to people. I like, I just don't feel like there are any good options. Like the black widow thing kind of felt like a decent compromise. And obviously it has turned into a massive historic lawsuit. Uh, so maybe that's not the best plan. Um, the 45 day window thing does seem promising to me, like optics aside of how Bob Chapik was describing it. Like I haven't been, I saw green Knight in a movie theater a month ago. I haven't been since. I don't know that I would. I certainly wouldn't take my kids who aren't vaccinated, which is a calculation for some Disney titles, maybe not so much, um, the Marvel movies. Um, but I don't, I don't know what they're supposed to do. I don't want them to keep delaying movies. And I also want movie theaters to continue to exist. And this is why I'm glad I don't own a movie theater because I don't know what the right decision is. Yeah, another speaking of the Green Knight, we should mention that that is coming to streaming on August nineteenth. You mm-hmm. know, pretty pretty early. Um, I am sad that you know it's not going to be a bigger sort of box office movie theater presence. Once again, really understandable that people don't want to go to the movie theater. I really get it. You know, like yeah. I'm not I'm not I'm not trying to encourage anyone to go to the movie theater uh, when it feels really unsafe to do so. Um, possibly this could you know give the Green Knight a big boost people watching at home. I hope they watch it at home. I think it's a phenomenal film. It's my favorite film of the year. I really hope people watch it. But you know, it's 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 all kind of sad. It was delayed for a year. It came out right when it felt like things were turning one way and then they turned Mm -hmm. another way. And here we are. Mm -hmm. So all I see is studios doing their best to try to figure out what will work and not lose them a ton of money. And uh, there are different different models, and I don't think we've hit a true winner yet. But you know, I'm I'm interested to watch all these various approaches as we go on, and hopefully, <laughs> this won't need to be a conversation in 2022. But you don't know. So yeah, I mean, we all got so uh, excited about the future and then realize that like not only are things like kind of backsliding now, but like it's not necessarily going to magically go back to the way it was in 2019 for a long time. 
and you know, we've got these film festivals coming up that like have some virtual components, but it looks like some people will see these movies in theaters, but like, will other people do it? The fall isn't like likely to be much better. Um, I don't know. It's just such a period of uncertainty. I want to be able to like go see Shang-Chi in theaters. Um, but I think that's more just holding on to an idea of a world that doesn't exist right now, which is something we're all struggling with. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm going to see it tonight at a press screening, and that's sort of a way that I feel somewhat safe seeing it. But sure. like, I don't know if I would feel safe in Gen Pop, you know. So Gen it's <laughs> sorry, sorry. I just like I don't I like that a tiny screening with some members of the press. I feel like maybe it's yeah. going to be okay. So I don't know. We'll see. But yeah, I I. I I have nothing but empathy, especially for like theater owners who just want to like keep their industry alive, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and, and you and I love going to the movies, so we'll keep an eye on it. Uh, well, should we, before we head to our uh, interview segment, should we talk about, uh, back to Emmy stuff and stuff you can watch at home right now safely? Um, Yeah, go ahead. Well, Emmy voting starts this week uh, on uh, Thursday, August 19th. So perhaps as you're seeing this. So uh, if you're an, if you're an Emmy voter and you're listening, go get those ballots. Uh, And we're just uh, talking to a lot of creators of television who made interesting stuff to consider. That's all. What were you going to say? Well, I just want to tell you about my favorite discovery of this Emmy season. Um, And it is so Seth Meyers, who's who's my, one of my all time favorite comedians, uh, my favorite weekend update host, my favorite late night host. Uh, he's nominated for an Emmy. He has one Emmy, only one. He deserves more, but he's nominated in a fun category, which is outstanding short form comedy, drama, or variety series. It's the kind of place where you'd find like carpool karaoke and stuff like that. Um, and it is for this segment that he started doing just like, you know, a few months ago, uh, in the in the like sp- early spring, I would say, uh, which is called Corrections, where he it's an online only thing. So you can go to YouTube right now and watch all of them. There's like a channel under the like late night with Seth Meyers thing called just Corrections, where he sits at his desk and he addresses like YouTube comments about things he got wrong. <laughs> and it is like it is you watch from the beginning because this is the thing where like jokes build on jokes. He has like inside jokes with the commenters. He like all of a sudden like Easter eggs start appearing on his desk. A like funny little like campaign for the Emmy starts appearing as part of it. And I just like, you know, I, I have this conversation with him that's going to be up on VF.com. So I, I like had to watch a couple to prepare for that. But then I just watched all of them because they were so fun and so good. And it's sort of Seth at his best, which is something that he's done in um, in this weird COVID time is uh, he stopped wearing suits. Like even when he went back into the studio, he's not wearing suits anymore. Good for uh, you, Seth. Yeah. He did like other late night hosts brought audiences back in. He hasn't. It's like his writers and his producers and his cameramen and stuff like that. So it's just sort of like a little bit of laughter and it's, <laughs> but it really works in an interesting way. There's an interesting uh, article that an uh, interview that Mike Ryan did with, um, on Up Rocks with Seth and with Mike Schumacher, the uh, producer, about, like, Mike Ryan was making the case, like, never bring the audience back, Seth. It's actually better this way. And I think I agree. I think it's uh, it's really, really fun and interesting. So I really recommend you go check that out. I had such a good time watching them. Um, his, like, increased exasperation, everyone telling him that this is bad for him. Um, it's just, it's it's like a comedy spiral uh, and, and therapy all at once. I really comedy loved it. Comedy spiral. <laughs> 
<laughs> I loved it. So yeah, I, I would recommend that and check out our, our chat with him up on VF.com. What do you, what do you want to highlight Katie? Uh, well, I have just been so excited about this series that our colleague Rebecca Ford really spearheaded and has done the bulk of the work on where we've got people who are nominated who have worked together previously talking to each other, which is, you know, the, the round table format where you like you get a bunch of nominees together to, to kind of talk has existed in a lot of places. And we've been kind of trying to think about like, what is a fresh take on this we can do? And Rebecca just had this idea to not just get people who are nominated, but who have a history together to kind of reunite on zoom. And the first one she did, uh, is so spectacular. It's Michaela Cole and Cynthia Arrivo who had worked together on chewing gum, which was Michaela's like first TV series. Um, and then now obviously Michaela Cole's nominated for I May Destroy You and Cynthia Erivo is nominated for um, her Aretha Franklin I was going to say biopic but it's a TV series I don't know what you call it that TV movie? Um, yeah, maybe it can just be a biopic. Um, but anyway, they just have such an, like, an intense conversation that I think you only have with someone who you know that well about like people who they've worked with who have like not respected them properly on set. And Michaela Cole talks about how like now that she's made, I made a story you should like may never want to work again, which I found really like, you know what? You've made something that good. Do whatever you want. Um, it's so good. Uh, there's one with Billy Porter and Evan Peters, who I know we, Joanna, you and I spent a lot of time talking about Evan Peters and how much <laughs> we loved his work on Mayor of Easttown and they worked together on Pose. Um, I was on Zoom with David Diggs and Tracy Ellis Ross, who, um, uh, she's nominated for Blackish and he is nominated for Hamilton. Uh, I, I enjoyed asking him like what it is like to just continually be nominated for awards for something that you made like six years ago, <laughs> which I think is very strange. Yeah. Um, it's just such a great series and it's, I think a really exciting example of what we're able to do now we have this whole awards insider section and people who are devoted to just doing this and, you know, covering these people who are nominated for Emmys and, you know, eventually will be Oscars, uh, full time. So please go check some of those out. Um, as I said, Emmy voting starts this week. So we'll be kind of wrapping up our Emmy nominees coverage this week and the next. And then, um, we have an award show to look forward to that should still be happening. That's what we seem to think right now. I personally hope they do. And that is another thing that is, um, sort of acting nimbly in response to what's going on because mm-hmm. they've they've announced a few changes about how the ceremony itself was going to operate and and who knows you know what the truth will be come come the night of but but yeah i mean we're all trying uh, uh, our best to have a semblance of normalcy and and to celebrate the things that like kept us sane or relatively so uh, in lockdown. So, yeah. Well, I um, in, in some of these interviews and then also I did a, I moderated a conversation for SAG with um, Josh O'Connor and Emma Corrin and they kind of talked about how, like, how much they want to go to the Emmys and see each other and celebrate in person. And, you know, I think we all get the sense that for sometimes award season can be a slog for these guys. that They're like doing the same events and seeing the same people. Um, but I think having not done it in person has really taken a toll on them. Barry Jenkins talked to Rebecca Ford about this, about how he like you know when he's when he was nominated for Moonlight or when he was on the circuit for Beale Street could talk like he met all these other directors and creative people and he hasn't done any of that this year so I really feel for them that they've lost that sense of community um you know which you you spend a year in an editing room making your movie and then you reemerge. like you probably look forward to that to getting to interact with your peers in a way you can't anywhere else I mean, um, I, I hope they get everything they want. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone will be a winner winner if they just get to go to the Emmys, no matter who wins the trophy. I mean, it's just, it's so hard to make any kind of prediction about what's going to happen. We're all just sort of like braced, I suppose, is how I feel. So, yep. 
Hey everybody, I'm entertainment journalist Drew Taylor. And I'm filmmaker Charles Hood. And we host Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. But right now we're about to launch our first ever universe-expanding miniseries. That's right, get ready for Light the Fuse presents The Directors. We'll speak to filmmakers who have made iconic Paramount movies and get them to open up in a way that only we can. That's right. Listen to Light the Fuse presents The Directors wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. This episode of Little Gold Men is brought to you by MUBI, a curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. They have everything from iconic directors to emerging auteurs. There is always something new to discover because with MUBI, each and every film is hand-selected so you can explore incredible movies streaming anytime, anywhere. Right now, they have a film collection for performers we love, and they are highlighting one of this year's Oscar frontrunners, Lily Gladstone. So I am here with David Canfield to talk about how much we love Lily Gladstone, and especially her film that is now on movie, Certain Women. David, fond memories there. Fond memories. What an introduction. None of us knew who she was before that film, um, but it's quite a thing to be in a Kelly Reichardt film with Michelle Williams, Kristen Stewart, and Laura Dern and completely steal it. And uh, now we're talking about it to this day. You can try Mubi for free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash LittleGoldMen. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash LittleGoldMen for a whole month of great cinema for free. Mubi.com slash Little Gold Men. Well, now, as Ramos, uh, let's hear the conversation that I recorded with Karina Longworth and Vanessa Hope. Uh, you, if you're listening to this, you probably know Karina for her show, You Must Remember This. She's also been on Little Gold Men several times. Uh, and Vanessa is a film producer and filmmaker um, who basically, you know, was a Karina fan, as she talks about, and brought her this really intense and fascinating story from her own family. And they have turned it into the podcast, Love is a Crime. Uh, we talk about the show, and then we also talk about one of the movies that uh, Joan Bennett and Walter Wanger made together, Scarlet Street. Which is available to watch free uh, online. So um, if you want to watch that movie and then come back and listen to it, I don't think it's a spoiler situation, but it is a great movie that I want to highlight before we get into this that you should check out uh, in addition to listening to Love is a Crime. So I'm here with Vanessa Hope and Karina Longworth, who are the hosts and creators of our really exciting new podcast series, Love is a Crime. Uh, hello, Vanessa and Karina. It's so good to uh, get to talk to you guys about the series. Hi, Katie. Hi, Katie. Um, so we've been working on this together to some extent. I mean, you guys have really done the bulk of the work, so I'm happy to have been a small part of it. Um, and the first episode is out now. Uh, you can listen to it wherever you find your podcast, just like this one. Uh, you can read more about it on Vanity Fair. Um, there's a lot out there about it. And it starts with 
you know, this big inciting incident uh, that Vanessa, you as the uh, grandchild of Walter Wanger and Joan Bennett knew about your entire life. Um, we don't want to go too much in depth into the series. It's 10 parts. There's a lot to listen to. Um, but Vanessa, just to start with, because I don't really know myself, you've known this story your whole life. It's a big part of your family history. What went into the decision to share it with the world in this way, in this format? I think it was moving to Los Angeles in 2015 that drove home the fact that I had been living with this story my whole life, but never fully investigated it. And here I was where it had happened with all of the potential for archive research, which I like doing. And uh, I felt I couldn't ignore it. I felt somehow surrounded by the ghosts of the story and Mm. knowing some of Hollywood's history and kind of feeling it around me in this city. So when did you and Karina start having the conversations about making this into the podcast? Well, I'm a huge Karina Longworth fan. I met Karina at Sundance early, like 2009 is when I had a movie I'd produced that was there and Karina wrote a review. Um, She called me a petite blonde, and I thought, oh, no, I don't want to be a petite blonde. (laughs) I'm going to have to change my hair color. Like like Joan Bennett, you change your hair color. Um, I mean, it was factually accurate, but... um, (laughs) And then when I was in L.A., I started taking these classes um, that were recommended by this woman, Joan Sheckle, who... You know, she focuses on writing, directing, acting, all of it. And Angela Robinson, who's a writer, director, and was in the class with me and heard the story I was researching, said, oh, my goodness, you have got to listen to this podcast. You must remember this by Karina Longworth. And I was like, Karina Longworth. Wow. And so I started listening and I absolutely love Karina's podcast, her whole take on old Hollywood is brilliant and feminist and exactly what I needed to hear. I was addicted. I listened to all of it. Um, I can't remember Karina, how we met again though. Um, yeah, I don't, I can't remember either, but I, I know that we, you were talking about doing this story as a documentary film and we talked about maybe me working on that and then that didn't work out. And then um, I was just kind of at a position where you just was like, I, I remember having like coffee with you, maybe three days before Tom Hanks got coronavirus. And so um, we, and we, you know, we're like, well, let's think about like, maybe if this could be a podcast. And then we actually just started working on it about a year ago from now. It's about August, 2020. Um, Karina, I thought a lot, you know, over the course of listening to these episodes with people here over the coming weeks, I thought a lot about your Polly Platt series on You Must Remember This and kind of taking a family history on and, and telling that story. And this is different because, you know, you're not interviewing Vanessa's family. Like, Vanessa's kind of filtering the whole story through her. But do, do they feel similar to you in that way and that this is a way to, to tell Hollywood through a different lens from the people who lived it in public but their version of the story hasn't been told before? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a similarity, especially in that with the Polly Platt show, I had access to Polly's story through her daughters. Mm -hmm. Um, And in this case, you know, we're kind of presenting the story of Joan Bennett and Walter Wanger 
um, through their granddaughter, Vanessa, and through the stories of her mother that Vanessa presents to us. And, and so, yeah, it's, it's in both cases, it, there's an aspect of family history, but I think that what my job is also in both cases is to bring in the less subjective Hollywood history. In the first episode, you guys, you know, talk about all of the different threads of Hollywood history and just American history get thrown into this. Like it's about love and uh, and Hollywood and power and the patriarchy and all these different things. Like what to you guys, like what is the thing about Joan and Walter's story that kind of demands to be reframed now? Like what are what is it telling us about either us now or kind of what we've learned about history from from the 50s when they were when this um, you know central crime happened? I feel like it boils down to a question of male violence and female silence and how those are connected. So when I first heard the line that my grandfather shot the balls off my grandmother's lover in a parking lot in Beverly Hills in 1951, I don't know if I just spoiled the whole show, but no, I don't. No, that's the opening of the first episode. It's a, it's a teaser. (laughs) I, it was not presented as a terrible thing. Let me put it that way. Mm. It was almost a joke. And it didn't, I didn't feel the weight of what that violent act meant, or what impact it had on my grandmother or my mother immediately. I mean, I slowly, I got to learn it as I asked questions. But it was surprising to me that it was presented that way. How has the process of uh, your family hearing the show or, or what they've heard gone? Like, how, how's everybody feeling about sharing the story now? Well, <laughs> well <laughs> uh, I, it, you know, family wants to be protected and remembered well. So one of the reasons I felt okay especially working with Karina, who is such an expert and professional, that we would be handling the story at the highest possible level and kind of giving the full picture of my grandparents' lives and work, that if that could balance out the scandal, that would be okay by my family. Because ultimately, what happens when you have a scandal is that it overshadows everything else in your life. And they can't uh, deny the fact that this scandal was brought on by my grandparents. So, you know, we're contextualizing it all and we're giving a full picture, not only of their lives and work, um, but another thing Karina is brilliant at is giving you a feeling for the times and why it would have happened when it did. Yeah, Karina, this series overlaps with a lot of things you've explored on You Must Remember This uh, in the past, like especially the Hollywood Blacklist series that you did a while ago. Like, what is it about this time period that keeps being so rich to explore? Like, why why are there so many stories that come out of this that we still are trying to wrap our heads around? Yeah, I mean, well, the time span of, of Joan and Walter's story as we're telling it, I mean, it really is kind of ex- the whole thing that I deal with on my podcast <laughs> because we're going from like the 20s to the 90s. Um, but, I mean, for me, something that I... You, you know, that made it really exciting to approach this was just that 
both Joan and Walter made so many great movies. And I mean, you know, I, of course, you, you always want to find the thing in a story that is relevant to the time you're making it, that speaks to issues that you're talking about in the present day. And uh, of course, this, this story has that. But for me, it's also, you know, what's actually mo most exciting about doing what I do is getting people excited about movies that they maybe have never heard of. Mm -hmm. um, and so in the case of, of, of this story, it's like you have all these incredible Fritz Lang movies, many of them starring Joan, but then also, you know, Walter produced You Only Live, um, you only live Once, which is like this Fritz Lang, Henry Fonda movie that's kind of like a proto Bonnie and Clyde, which is pretty great. Um, and I was really excited about being able to talk about movies like I Want to Live and Smash Up Story of a Woman that Walter produced. Um, and so I just... I don't know. I think that for me, it's like you want you do want to talk about the things that um, you can reframe from the perspective of 2021. But I'm also always just hoping that people will go and watch the movies. Yeah, there's a lot you can learn about Joan and Walter and their careers and especially Joan's image as a movie star, which I think you guys really acknowledge in the show is so important to how the, the shooting was translated. Um, but to to talk to you guys, I watched Scarlet Street, which is one of the um, Joan and Walter and Fritz Lang movies. It's a Diana production named after um, Joan's daughter. Um, I watched that for the first time and I feel like it really just kind of lit up what Joan's persona was. Like she's so, so she's playing this kind of classic film fatale in Scarlet Street. She seduces Edward G. Robinson and is really uh, kind of merciless and heartless about it. Um, and she's so incredible to watch on screen. And it really just clarified for me why she defined the film fatale of the of the 40s and why that kind of reputation stuck with her. Uh, did you guys see Scarlet Street for the first time doing this show? Did you have a particular attachment to it? Uh, I, I didn't. Um... I actually got to know Joan's movies, specifically Scarlet Street and The Woman in the Window and also Trade Winds by seeing them in Paris. Um, you know, before the pandemic, I tried to go to Paris every couple of years because it's the best city in the world for watching movies. There's like 10 movie theaters that do nothing but show um, classic Hollywood films all day long. That's and amazing. they love showing Joan Bennett movies <laughs> and they love showing Fritz Lang movies. Um, and so all, all three of those movies, Trade Winds, Woman in the Window and Scarlet Street, I saw for the first time in tiny Paris movie theaters. Um, and, you know, when you see movies for the first time in that environment, they have kind of an extra layer of romance. Um, and particularly Trade Winds for me was one where it was like, that's, I think that's the movie where I sort of fell in love with Joan's screen image. Hmm. I mean, Vanessa, having known Joan in your in your family, what is what, what is watching her on screen like for you? It's a way of getting to know her because I only kind of met her in the last decade of her life. And um, she was very sweet, but I could not have imagined her as the femme fatale she plays in a movie like Scarlet Street, <laughs> knowing her as my grandmother. So it's a little bit of a disconnect. And I think because my mother was really so adamant that I not go into the business, ideally in any way, but most definitely not acting. Mm -hmm. uh, and she reluctantly uh, uh, will say she likes Scarlet Street for sure, the Macomber Affair, and a few others. Um, I, but never sort of, she would always, my mother would say that Joan didn't make a big deal of being an actress and didn't think she was a great actress. And so she would sort of downplay it. It was always downplayed. So I feel like it was a secret connection maybe that I had when I watched Joan and enjoyed it. 
Do you feel like, and not to say that what she said wasn't true, but I feel like you watch her on screen and you just kind of recognize some kind of joy in doing the work there. Like, the, the show gets so well into how she wanted to be a wife and a mother, and she was a single mother at 18 and kind of the, like, the importance of her personal life to her. But do you think maybe she cared more about being a movie star than, than she let on? I think she enjoyed working. I think she enjoyed having friends and, you know, through her work, like uh, Catherine Lee Scott comes to mind because I've just gotten to know her and she was on Dark Shadows with Joan at the end of Joan's life and really understood um, Joan as a person. And I think that it enlivened her. I mean, I think having acting families around her. I mean, she came from an acting family and she celebrated that as Karina talks about on the podcast. She really does avoid talking about herself in her book and does that by kind of giving the long history of her um, acting lineage. So I think it mattered to her. Yes. I mean, Karina, having seen a lot of uh, the film noirs from this period and have written and, and done a lot of podcasts about this period, like how does, if someone's going to watch Scarlet Street and hasn't seen anything Joan Bennett is in before and as they listen to the rest of the show, like how do you put her in the context of the rest of the, the women who were acting around the time? Like where does she fit in in the um, kind of this period of Hollywood among the, the other stars? Well, I think that um, the the sort of, genre of film noir in America really got, you know, it, these weren't necessarily the first film noirs, but they really kind of like got like a kick in the ass um, <laughs> by the the one-two punch of The Woman in the Window and Double Indemnity. And so both of those movies were kind of taking performers who had been around for a while in Joan Bennett and Barbara Stanwyck and giving them this new persona of, of being the, the femme fatale and, and being like this woman who who has this intense sexuality and the power to destroy lives and in films that speak to um, all of the anxiety and particularly like masculine anxiety that was coming out of the World War II period and particularly after the war flourished in America. Um, and so I think that, you know, with Barbara Stanwyck, she was somebody who didn't necessarily get become typecast. But with Joan Bennett, she was someone who was, I think, a little bit more in search of a persona. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she was able to kind of latch on to the need for femme fatales and film noirs really, really well. And, and she had already become this kind of smoldering brunette a few years earlier. And I think that ends up becoming this, um, this archetypical femme fatale look. I mean, there, there's, she was sort of modeled after Hedy Lamarr who came before her a little bit, um, or was at least brunette before her. Um, and Hedy Lamarr also would have been a great film noir star. Unfortunately, her career kind of took a different direction. But, um, you know, I think even when you think of something like um, Uma Thurman in Pulp Fiction and the way that she is styled when this sort mm-hmm. of like, like um, you know, the black haircut and the sort of red lips and and the this idea that that's like what a gangster's girlfriend looks like. Um, I think you can trace that back to, if not Joan Bennett, then at least like, women like Joan Bennett and that type of look in these film noirs. So even if people think they don't know Joan Bennett's work, her iconography and legacy has lived on much longer than than that. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. 
So the first episode of the series is really mostly Joan's story. It kind of like traces her childhood as the uh, child of this acting family and her uh, shipboard romance that got her married at 18. Um, but Walter Wanger, um, her husband, kind of becomes a much, you know, equally important character as the series goes on. And I feel like we've gotten this far without saying that on the show they're voiced by Zoe Deschanel and John Hamm and uh, Griffin Dunn as Jennings Lang, the agent at the center of it. The casting in this is really great. Um, but what I what I love about listening to the series as a whole is that Joan and Walter are both so complex. Like this really clear cut situation of he was a man with a gun and he shot somebody is so complicated by the lives around them. Like, how did you guys hang on to that sense of not just that they were people who had all these different conflicting things going on in them, but there's it's sort of unknowable, like what motivates someone to do what they do. And when you want to tell a clear cut story in a podcast, how do you hang on to the ambiguity about what re- real people want and why they do what they do? Well, I don't think there are any clear-cut stories in real life. Um, and, you know, I don't, yeah, I, it, I guess even if you were able to interview Joan, if she was around, I don't know that she would tell us the clear-cut version, mm-hmm. um, both because of her personality and because of the fact that she was trained by Hollywood to, you know, tell a, a sellable version of the story, tell a version that would allow her to keep working. Um, Walter, I think we have more insight into how his mind worked because he was somebody who um, dictated his thoughts onto tape. And we have a lot of those tapes and you'll hear some of them in the podcast as it goes on. Unfortunately, some of them are, you know, this is this is old material. It, it hasn't been perfectly archived, so we can't play all of them. Also, there's thousands of hours of them. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's really, really fascinating to be able to actually listen to a man's diary entry. And, you know, he does talk about the shooting years afterwards and and his evolving thoughts about everything that happened. And and so that is something we have a little bit less ambiguity about. But certainly we don't really know what was going through his mind, you know, when he had the gun in his hand. We don't know if he was trying to kill Jennings Lang. The best we can do is is do what I always do in my work, which is line up all the things we do know and put it in the context that we have of what was going on in these people's lives and at that time period and their work and everything else. And then, you know, just try to say what we think mm-hmm. probably was. Vanessa, did you come away from this thinking about um, your grandparents any differently than when you started? Definitely. I find myself processing their story in new ways almost every day, mostly in the shower. But (laughs) yeah, um, you know, one of the details I like about this story is that it inspired Billy Wilder to create The Apartment, which Mm -hmm. is an incredible movie. Karina talks about on the show, and I wonder what other kind of creative inspiration will come from having dug so deep into all the details of their full lives. And, uh, you know, I'm still processing it because I'd like to do something more with it. So I'm going to keep a few of those ideas closer to the vest right now. Oh, that's a that's a fun tease. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to just kind of throw out some of the things people can see in the season ahead and anything you guys want to tease, too. Uh, Billy Wilder's The Apartment gets involved. Dark Shadows gets involved, as we mentioned. Uh, Cleopatra is a big part of this story. The HUAC hearings. Um, any any threads of the story and coming up in future episodes that you guys find especially fascinating? Uh, well, there's there's kind of like a twist in, in the last episode that deals with like some very topical issues of sexuality. Yeah, I uh, not I do not want to spoil anything either. But uh, the the final <laughs> chapters of Joan's life, Joan's life are really fascinating. 
Well, we talked a little bit about Scarlet Street, which I watched for free on Amazon Prime, I believe. Uh, the, the nice thing about some of these older movies is if they've been maintained at all, sometimes they're very easy to watch for free, which is nice. Um, for people who might want to, you know, jump ahead in the series or learn more about Joan or Walter um, or the Pierre de Film Noir, any other recommended viewing you guys would throw out for learning more about these guys? Um, yeah. So, I mean, Scarlet Street is available for free online. I think that could be one of the reasons it's a better known Joan Bennett film noir. Um, but I love trade winds. Um, Karina turned me on to that one. I hadn't seen it. And all of Jones noir with Fritz Lang. Um, I like secret beyond the door and manhunt and the woman in the window. And for Walter invasion of the body snatchers and the, I want to live anti-death penalty movie he did with Susan Mm -hmm. Hayward. Um, his, Early movies, John Ford, Stagecoach, Alfred Hitchcock's Foreign Correspondent, Max Ophel's The Reckless Moment, which Joan stars in. People love that. That's been remade. Strange fact, it's always Tilda Swinton playing Joan in (laughs) remakes of her movies. Um, Yeah. Unless it's uh, Diane Keaton and Father of the Bride, I guess. Oh, there you go. Oh, I was just going to actually say about Father of the Bride. I watched that for the first time um, when I was working on this, the the original that Joan is in with Elizabeth Taylor and Spencer Tracy. And I wouldn't say it's the best or most interesting Joan Bennett movie, but um, it, that movie's weird. That movie's <laughs> really, really weird because it's directed by Vincent Minnelli and it's it's almost like a Jerry Lewis movie, but it's very psychologically strange. That has me more. I've never seen it either. That has me more intrigued to see it than um, than anything <laughs> else has. Uh, I've also never seen Cleopatra, and um, thinking about Walter's role in that and um, kind of the huge debacle surrounding it. I don't know if I want to read Walter's book about it more than I want to see the movie, but it made me want to learn more for sure. Well, Walter's book is great. The movie, you know, obviously it's a time commitment. Um, and if you, <laughs> I, I would say the number one way to watch it would be to watch it on a big screen if you can. But if you can't, the last time I saw it, I watched it on a on a, on a very long flight, um, and it it makes a very long flight pass by. <laughs> That's probably not what they had in mind when they made it, uh, but <laughs> <No>. <laughs> some kind of endorsement. Um, yeah. Did you find anything on streaming that you wanted to, to add in there? I just wanted to add that the a movie that. Um, Vanessa mentioned The Reckless Moment, which is um, a very interesting sort of late noir where Joan Bennett is kind of a housewife who is in, cast in the role of trying to stop um, a crime from being revealed and then gets kind of deeper and deeper into this criminal network. Um, that is streaming in a really high quality copy on YouTube. That will take it. One of the interesting facts uh, Karina unearthed and these are a series of movies I hadn't seen of Jones before that was really, they were really fun to discuss with Karina, um, were all the anti-Nazi movies that Joan was in. So confirm or deny margin for error, the man I married. I love, I kind of love those movies now. And, and the man I married is also on YouTube. There you go. I love that one. Yeah. And as you guys talk about, I think in the second or third episode, like she was in all of these anti-Nazi movies in this period that it's hard for us to process now. But it was very it was not very popular to be anti-Nazi. Like she was really kind of sticking her neck out to the extent that an actress could at the time, which is really interesting, um, especially given, you know, Walter's political ambitions, too. They had a, they, they put a lot into their films, even in a period of the studio system where that wasn't easy to do. Definitely. What a power couple. I know. Well, learn more about them. Um <laughs> 
Well, everyone should subscribe to Love is a Crime. As you said at the beginning, it's available everywhere. You can find your podcast everywhere. You're hopefully listening to Little Gold Men, and you must remember this. Um, we are so happy that you guys uh, brought it to us to partner on this show. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Katie. Okay, Joanna, you had a big promise about how this is the Hacks interview that is not like any other <laughs> Hacks interview, uh, talking to Jen Satsky. So uh, what, what do you want to highlight from this conversation we're about to hear? Well, we should say that, so Jen is one of a trio of creators, Lucia and Yellow and uh, Paul Downs are her co-creators. And um, I have talked to all three of them. Lucia and Paul talked to Joy Press or VF.com. There's been like plenty of hacks, uh, showrunner conversations. But did you know that Jen Sassy got married in a drive-thru in Vegas? Wow. She did. And Mike Schur uh sort of hosted her bachelorette night. So anyway, I just think uh it's a it's a delightful story about that. But also like she really got into this thing about hacks that I really, really loved. It feeds right into something that you and I have been so preoccupied with the last few years at least, which is this idea of like reckoning with our complicity in the way that women have been treated uh in in various industries. Um, it, but but in the arena of fame, uh, and, and specifically in the last few decades, I mean, throughout history, but specifically in the last few decades, this thing that you and I talk about a lot and how much that is the genesis for what they want to do with hacks. Uh, it's not an accidental byproduct of what they discovered along the way. It was like the core of the show. Um, and I just thought that that was really interesting. And, you know, Jen talked a lot about how her feelings of complicity and all that sort of stuff. So let's hear from Jen herself about one of my favorite shows of this last year, Hacks. Well, let me start by asking you something. I know that you had at one time in your life, a background in standup. So my question for you, Jen is like, is there any of you... <laughs> and Hannah or Deb or are you both Hannah and Deb who are you uh, you know it's funny we Paul Lucia and I sometimes talk about like are you more are you more a Deborah? are you more an Ava and I think we've decided that Paul's a Deborah. Lucia is like an Ava Deborah split and I'm an Ava so that's kind of our our read on it what do you think you are Oh, um, you know, my best days, I aspire to be a Deb, but you know, <laughs> probably I'm more of an Ava. It's funny because I was, I mean, don't be scared, but I was looking at some of your old tweets and you had something that was like hashtag vape life. And I was like, hmm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> living that vape I, life. <laughs> yeah. I think that was ironic. I uh, no. It was ironic. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean the, the background and stand up background, that is a very like like quotes around background, I think, because I did it, you know, when I was like in my early, early 20s in New York and I had just graduated college and I was working as, at a restaurant, it was kind of like I knew I wanted to do comedy, but I didn't really know which avenue I wanted to pursue exactly. So I did some stand up, very few shows, but I, I quickly learned that it, I was more of a writer than a performer. So I retired after probably a single digit number of shows. <laughs> <laughs> My retirement came. So it's, it's, it is so hard. I give stand up so much credit because, you know, one of the things I love about writing TV and working in TV is it's so collaborative. You really feel like you're part of a team. Mm -hmm. And even though stand up is like a, you know, it's a community, it's a close knit community in a lot of ways. Like, you, you know, it's still when you're up on that stage, it's just you and you're alone. So I, I give stand ups a lot of credit. It, it, it's not for me. <laughs> well, I, I mean, 
speaking of exactly that, that idea of collaborative creativity, um, because I am such a huge fan of some of the other shows you've worked on, including The Good Place, uh, which had a great podcast that got a lot of great insight into your writer's room there. I know that was a massive writer's room, yeah. um, right? Especially yeah. like towards the end. I think you had like some like 13 people in there, something like that. Um, and I'm curious when you and Lucia and Paul are sort of breaking something in a, in a much smaller setting, how do you compare those two processes, like in terms of pitching to a big room versus a smaller group of writers? Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's like on Parks and Rec and Good Place, we had a large writer's room. And part of that is a little bit because network shows you were used to the 22 episode model. And when you're doing 22 episodes and you're writing while you're shooting, while you're editing, you just need a large writing staff just to cover all that ground and write all those episodes. Um, and Good Place, of course, was fewer episodes than that. We, we did 13 a season and 14 in the last one, but it was still a schedule where we went into production while the writer's room was going on. And so same kind of thing. You need you need people to be on set while you're still in the room breaking, you know, you're breaking the last few episodes while you're shooting the first few. And so hacks is a little bit different. You know, we, we still have a wonderful writer's room of, of very talented writers, but it is smaller for a couple of reasons. One is that we you know, in the streaming model are able to write all our episodes usually before yeah. we go to production, which is a huge um, advantage, like creatively to me. And then the other reason I think is that there's, there are three creators, which is an unusual thing for a show. And so because there's already so many brains at the top and we work, you know, we really do make every decision together. It kind of means that I think there's, one like you already have you know three people is already in some ways some rooms that's half the room right there and those are all the creators at the top right. so we just kind of found that keeping it a little bit smaller while still inviting in you know new and different and diverse voices has has been the kind of golden ticket for us i know that in some comedy writers room the the goal is to get the room to crack up like at your joke right so are you are you still doing this in the smaller setting of, of folks you know well in zoom writers room the goal is to get your pitch out without your wi-fi uh fucking up <laughs> uh so i lawn for the days where we're back in person in a writer's room and, and that's the goal i mean yeah. it is still like yeah of course in a comedy writer's room when you're pitching jokes you're you're still you know you're trying to make everyone laugh and if someone pitches a joke and everyone laughs at it it's like okay that's usually a winner or it's in the category of tv writers room jokes that are the fun the things you laugh at the hardest that never in a million years could you put in the show right. uh, <laughs> but i think hacks you know maybe more so than other shows is like we really are trying to go for a tone that is, is in a lot of ways equal parts comedy and drama um which i think is reflected in the show so it is a you know of course comedy first and everyone is pitching jokes and and, and that but like it's also maybe more than other shows i've worked on uh, more dramatic so we're also trying to talk about you know longer story arcs and just kind of like emotional stuff about these characters and of course you do that on every show you work on but um yeah in terms of those longer arcs, I'm wondering, you know, if if folks were to rewatch the show, um, 
which everyone should do, I think. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I would love them to, please. Do you think that there's something they would discover in that rewatch of, of, of seeds carefully planted towards the beginning that are paid off later? Yeah, I, I, I think so. Like we really tried to, especially as I said, like getting to write the whole season before you go into production, it allows mm-hmm. us to look at the whole season, like very holistically and, and plan things that way. And, and very specifically with, you know, these characters arcs, like we do try to plan things that then pay off. Like, for example, you know, in that first episode, when, when Marty is at lunch with Deborah and he sort of says in the pilot, when he says, why do you even want to do all these shows? It, you're not, it's not like you're having fun up there. And we very much so get a sense that Deborah Vance is someone who's going through the motions. She's amassed this incredible fortune and, and success in her own way, but, but perhaps she's not as fulfilled as she could be, you know, so that's in the pilot. And then 10 episodes later, after she has grown close with Ava and, and they have been through everything they have in their relationship and Ava has cracked her open in, in ways, Deborah says, when she asks her to go on tour with her, you know, she's, she tells her about the tour and Ava jokingly is like, and you can't do it without me. And Deborah says, no, of course I can do it without you, but it would be a lot less fun. And that is sort of intentionally planted to show that growth from pilot to finale of like, it, it's, it's Ava has lit a spark in this woman and they, they genuinely love each other at this point. And it's a much more satisfying creative experience for Deborah. You and I have talked about that before a little bit, just about this idea of Hacks as like a as a love story um, between these two characters. What do you bring from your own experience of finding that sort of creative connection with someone, and and if that connecting creatively can be as strong as falling in love romantically? Yeah, totally. I I mean, I I really think it can. Like, I, in a lot of ways, the story of this show on screen is also the story of it off screen, and that it's about people who collaborate and come together and make each other better. And that it, that's very much so how I feel about Paul and Lucia and, and honestly, all the wonderful cast and crew that we were lucky enough to have on this show um, were just so talented. And, and, and that's what I love about TV is like, it's so collaborative. It's a bunch of people working together towards this common goal. And yeah, I think I, I think you talk to any person in the arts, like especially comedy, like it, it's sort of like Deborah says in episode nine, like when you find someone with a similar sense of humor, it really is like you guys speak your own special language. And so we really just wanted to to highlight that and kind of, um, you know, pay pay reverence to the fact that creative collaboration between two people or, or many people is a really, really special thing. You know, to that end, I was I was curious. You worked with Mike Schur before on on a couple shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, his name is is dancing around the show. How much was he involved in the whole launching of this series? Yeah, um, Mike was super involved. I mean, w- without without inflating Mike's ego too much, but who knows? Who knows <laughs> if he'll watch, if he'll listen? I think he mostly just listens to podcasts about baseball. So we I might, think that's right. Uh, you know, Mike from he hired me on Parks and Rec and I was a staff writer. That was like my really like second narrative room. And then I've worked with him for eight years beyond that, maybe more now. And he, he truly taught me how to write TV. Like I, it's, it's very much so speaking of collaboration between creative people, like that is uh, such a special creative relationship to me because he is just, um, 
you know, in my mind, the best in the business when it comes to running TV and making good TV, but also being like a, a kind, good boss to people and friend. And so when we were finally ready to pitch this idea and, you know, we were looking for someone to produce it who had that kind of experience, like it, it was, it was no question for me that Mike would be my first and hopefully last ask to do it. Um, so yeah, Mike was just super, you know, we had had this idea in our heads for so, so long and we had a great deal of it arced out when we first like kind of went in and pitched it to him. Um, but you know, you just like, he, his advice is so invaluable in terms of someone who's run t- many TV shows, like knows about character, knows about story, knows about structure. Like he, he nicely says that the pitch was fully formed when we came to him and he did that thing, but that, you know, that's not true. He, he just has been such a wonderful source of advice and, and guidance for the project. Something I've heard you guys say a couple times in interviews is this idea that you wanted to show the day-to-day of Vegas that we've got a lot of uh, film and television that's about visiting Vegas, but what is it like to actually exist in Vegas? And I, you know, I know you shot there for a week, but other than that, what was your research like to make sure you captured the true, the true Vegas experience? Well, it was funny. We, we, the three of us kind of came into it with very different perspectives on Vegas. Paul and Lucia had never really been there in the like Vegas party way. Uh, they'd only ever been there to like canvas politically or to work. So they were like, we don't really, what's, what is Vegas about? And I, <laughs> I, in a, in a really, yeah, I, I love Vegas. I, I, I find, I'm not like a huge partier but for some reason the whole Vegas experience is so funny and like silly to me that I just yeah. I love it so I've been there a bunch and I actually I got I got married I eloped where DJ elopes in episode seven at really? the chapel <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah that my husband and I that's where we got married um in, in an Audi in that uh drive through wedding chapel um so we kind of came into it with different perspectives on Vegas, but quickly, like as we shot there, they fell in love with it. Like the people were just so welcoming to us. I mean, obviously it's a, it's a city that does hospitality and tourism so, so well. So it was a wonderful experience to shoot there. And yeah, we just, we, we said like, well, there's lots of movies and and stuff about crazy nights in Vegas. And obviously we have that in the show too, like episode five with Ava meeting George and stuff, but we also just were like, what does it mean to be like first for Deborah? What does it mean to be someone who was kind of pushed out by Hollywood and maybe mainstream media? And so she kind of went to this lawless judgment free place and like built up, built up a castle. She built up these walls and, and, you know, her, her money is, is used to shield her in a lot of ways. And so for her, it's kind of this like oasis in the desert where she's free from the, uh, world that rejected her a little bit. And then, yeah, we also just wanted to explore, okay, so what does that mean for her daughter who grew up with money there, but also very troubled having grown up on the road? What does it mean for like someone like Kiki, who's a single mom, like works multiple jobs, like making ends meet. And so it, it was just a really like fun way into Vegas that we felt we hadn't really seen before. What, if anything more, can you tell me about your drive through wedding? <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you a lot about it. I mean, how long, how long do we have? Like basically, 
basically a wedding was like never in the cards for us, especially for me. A wedding is like really not my vibe. Um, I love weddings. Don't get me wrong. My friends and weddings I've been to have been so fun and wonderful, but um, it was, it it was something I wasn't probably going to do. And so then eventually we were like, well, maybe like, we were like, maybe we'll never get married. I don't know. And then we were like, I don't know, should we get married this weekend? (laughs) And it was like, all right, let's do it. And very funnily enough, I was in the Good Place writer's room at the time. This is back in 2017. So it was Valentine's Day was that like Thursday, which complete coincidence. We weren't like, let's do it because it's Valentine's Day. As as you get from the drive through chapel, we're not romantics. Uh, <laughs> uh, but we were sitting around at lunch at the Good Place and Mike was like, uh, you guys doing anything for Valentine's Day? Like, Jen, what are you and Travis doing? And I was like, well, I can't lie. And I was like, uh, I mean, we're getting married this weekend. <laughs> and everybody was like, what? What are you talking about? You're getting married Saturday? And I was like, yeah, we're going to Vegas at a drive through It's not a big deal. Don't make a big deal about it. And everybody was so deeply confused. Uh, and then that Friday, we took a half day and we went and saw John Wick 2 as my bachelorette party. Love it. And and Mike was my uh, self-proclaimed maid of honor for it. Um, and then, yeah, we, we my husband and I drove to Vegas and we got married in drive-thru and it was, it was, it was very fun. I mean, I'm really giving you the full story on this drive-thru. I, I want it. I want it, the it full was, story. It was very funny because the man who married us, who was totally lovely, but he was very, um, very traditional, very conservative, let's say. And he said, oh, can I bring God into the ceremony? And, you know, my husband and I are not religious, but I was like, he was about to say no. And I was like, it seems important to him. Just let him do it. And then during the ceremony, he was very like, it was all about like man and woman fitting together, like lock and key. And he said, he's my husband's name is Travis. And he said, Travis, if you're ever doing a business deal and you don't know what to do, you go home to your wife, you sit down at dinner with her that she's made you and you ask her what her gut intuition is because women have feelings and you, you can use that. And my husband, to his credit, said, oh, she makes way more money than I do. That's not going to happen. And he kind of laughed like because he didn't quite believe that that was possible, maybe. And so it was a hilarious ceremony that was very not us but it was fun. And then, and then we went to the cheesecake factory after for dinner. So. Mazel. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. I love this story. Um, (laughs) Speaking of, uh, of marriages and common law and all of that, something that I thought was really interesting that I heard Paul say in one of your interviews was looking to someone like Debbie Reynolds uh, (laughs) as, as sort of an inspiration for Deb in terms of what happens to her after her marriage and how she has to, rebuild her own fortunes like that. And I think that's such an interesting inspiration. Were there other stories like that, that you looked into when thinking about sort of, you talked about how the treatment of Deb uh, in the show is, is part of a larger reckoning we're having with the treatment of women in the industry. Yeah, totally. I mean, we did a tremendous amount of research on women like Debbie Reynolds, like you know, and Carrie Fisher and and Phyllis Diller and Joan Rivers and like all of these women had this kind of like commonality running through their stories, which is like they face such incredible hardship 
it's it's like they face such hardship that like I'm like we should still be talking about it to this day. It's crazy, yeah. but these women were just expected to take it and and roll off, like keep moving, and they just they just were not really like celebrated for how much shit they had to go through. And and yeah, and then the other thing, you know, as we followed that trend throughout history. We also talk so much about, like you said, this moment of reckoning we're having with women whose stories we got wrong, whose stories the media decided they got to tell and the women themselves didn't get to tell. And so that that you see that in um, when when American Crime Story came out and, and Marsha Clark and we realized how horrible we were to her or Paris Hilton, Britney Spears, all these women who quite frankly, like the, it's, it's more comfortable for society to go, oh, they're a joke. They're a joke. We, we put them to the fringe and we laugh at them. And it's exactly why Deborah in episode, episode six says, I realized they'd rather laugh at me than believe me because for so long, that is, that is the best women could get in this world is that, well, I'm not going to be believed. I'm not going to be listened to the, the truth of my story. Isn't going to be like, actually heard and and given any kind of reverence it, it's going to be that i can just make myself a joke and maybe that's how i can contribute and still exist in this world and that's the choice deborah had to make in in our world is that she said like okay well i can't actually talk about what happened to me i guess i just have to be the butt of the joke and i'll lean into that and i'll become the qvc mumu lady who burned the house down because better to be in the game making money than I guess just completely shut out. And, and, and that's something we, we talk a lot about too. Like we want this show in a lot of ways to be, I don't know, a, a, a love letter or, or pay due to the women who didn't get to have the careers because they did suffer such horrible indignities and it made them go, I can't do this. I won't do this. Like, you know, it's so, there's so many women and, and people on the fringe who are othered and pushed aside and treated so horribly that we never, the world is robbed of their stories and it's so horrible and tragic. And so we just, we hope this show is paying respect to that experience because it should be talked about more. Yeah. I think the, I won't, I won't call it a magic trick. It's probably just uh, what we would call good writing, but, but the, uh, you know, the, the, the trick you pulled off in the season is I am dying to see Deborah's show that you know that they're working on by the end like I'm dying yeah. to see that and I don't know if you'll ever show it to me I don't I don't know if maybe it's better <laughs> for me to never see it in season two but like but I'm dying to you and I can I can just imagine as you say this 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 large-scale reckoning we're having I actually did have in my notes to ask you a Britney Spears question because I know one of the reasons you went to Vegas at least a few times was to see Britney Spears and so oh. I was curious oh. if you had if you had Brittany, thoughts and opinions you wanted to share with me? Yeah, of course. I mean, I I have been such a massive Britney Spears fan for you know my whole life. Like it, you know, she she came to fame exactly when I was you know in the perfect window to really like fall in love with her. And it's yeah, it's really tragic and sad. And to be honest, I feel complicit now having gone to see her in Vegas. Not one, not two, not three, but four times. Uh, and I'm like, oh, shit, I guess I like I didn't quite none of us knew like we knew that there was this weird situation, but I, I definitely didn't know just how awful it was. So uh I do. I do now. I'm, I'm reckoning with my own, like, as we all are, we're, we're all yeah. complicit in this treatment of women in society of like, oh, right. What, what exactly was I being blind to just because I didn't want to hear it or I didn't want to see it. 
And that's the, I mean, the Ava journey and especially like the sequence with Ava in like in the archive when she's really digging in and figuring stuff out that did hit home for me in terms of journeys that I've gone on around some of these women, the act of watching American crime story or all of that, you know, it's just sort of that sinking awful feeling, you know, that, that, uh, internalized misogyny or or woman on woman crime, you know? Right. Totally. And you see it in comedy a lot too. And hopefully we're slowly inching towards progress in so many ways. But like when I, when I started my career, my first full-time writing job was, I was a monologue writer for, um, Late Night with Jimmy Fallon. And this wasn't just a Fallon problem. This was every late night host across the board. Not coincidentally, all of them were white men. And and I remember monologue jokes, like so many women were the butt of those jokes. Like, you know, back in 2011, it was Kim Kardashian. It was very tragically Amy Winehouse we used to do jokes about before she tragically passed away, you know? And that's so, that's so horrible. Like I, I look back now and I, I just say, making women the the butt of the joke when there was like real trauma and tragedy and pain going on to what they were experiencing in their real life. It's, it's really horrible. And and I'm glad that we are having this reckoning and having a moment where we're hopefully learning like, okay, we, we're not going to do that anymore, but yeah, it's really, it's really hard to sit with your own as a, as a woman, even complicity in that. And, and yeah, that is Ava's journey. Ava is someone who, as as woke as she is, she's also one of her fatal flaws is she is has leaned so hard into like what is cool and what is cool comedy and and who gets to be cool. And so she she writes Deborah off as a, a QVC moo lady as a joke. And that's very intentionally the journey we wanted to show. Like I, I know that Ava, you know, starts as maybe an unlikable or more unlikable than other characters, but it is intentional because she has to go on that journey to discover what so many people now hopefully are discovering about many women is that they, they didn't give them a fair shot and they didn't listen to their story. The evolution of comedy that I feel like I'm witnessing and you, you would know better than I would is, is what I'm seeing is not, it's not that you can't make sharp jokes or, or biting jokes but it, but I think what's getting better is this idea of punching up always and not punching down. Right. Totally. And totally. I think uh, something that I love in the first episode of hacks is, I mean, there's a lot that I love, but you know, <laughs> Deb chasing Ava down to like punch up her joke and, and like her whole point of like, the issue isn't that the joke is offensive. The issue is that the joke isn't funny. Like that's yeah. the problem. Um, and this idea is like, is, is it funny to punch down or is it actually just better comedy to figure out smarter ways to, to punch up and, and, uh, et cetera. So yeah. What do you right. think? Yeah, no, you're exactly right. That like for us, we talk about that all the time about punching on first punching down. I think a lot of people in bad faith are, are using arguments these days about, Oh, cancel culture. And you can't say anything and you can't make joke. And like, the truth is, is like, that's, that's bullshit. Like the, what you can do is you can make jokes and you can be funny, but like try to do that without punching down and without targeting people that have been beat down and marginalized and, and, you know, for so, so long, because the truth is it's much funnier and better when a joke speaks truth to power and, and isn't punching down. And so you're, you're exactly right that I think we're finally realizing like, oh, like talk about being a hack. There's nothing more hacky than, than 
hitting a target that's been hit 8 million times unfairly. Like look for new targets, look, look to say something new in your comedy because that's a much more uh, worthy thing to be going up on a stage or putting on someone's screen. Exactly. Um, you've, you've, uh, you've said the, the wonderful phrase QVC movie lady a couple of times. Um, <laughs> and one of my favorite things about Dev, other than the fact that she is played by the great Jean Smart, is that she looks exactly, Jean Smart's too young to be my grandmother, but she looks exactly <laughs> like how my grandmother used to dress if my grandmother had QVC money. Like, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, <laughs> I, my question for you around that, though, is, is um, what is it like to go from being a writer to being a creator and having to think about all the corners of a project down to, like, sort of the, the shape of the moo-moos, et cetera, you know? Um, it's both very challenging and very re- rewarding, I'll say, because yeah, exactly right. Like I was so lucky in my journey as a TV writer to come up in, in great writers rooms and of course be on set for many episodes of those shows and learn about set that way. But it really is a totally different thing when you are a showrunner and every decision is, is filtered through you. Um, and really like a lot of it is just you know, we're super involved, Paulucci and I, of course, in every decision, but we also are lucky that we hired really talented, wonderful people. Like, you, you know, you pointed out the the costumes, like Kathleen Felix Hager just did such an amazing job with, with Deborah and all her clothes that a lot of that is just giving people the canvas and say, okay, go paint, go do what you do best. And, and uh, uh, you know, so I learned, and that's that's been a very rewarding experience like I said and especially like with the Emmys and stuff like that was what was so special and cool on the morning the nominations were announced is seeing all these wonderful people who worked so hard at through such a difficult time especially with COVID to see them get recognized for the great work they did was like really really cool and special. What's been your favorite part so far about this whole Emmys uh, campaign experience? Other than talking to me, obviously. <laughs> yeah, this podcast number one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Talk about my drive-through wedding. Uh, <laughs> that was pretty cool. Um, honestly, a little bit what I just said is uh, of like that these people that are on your cast, you know, there's like the people that are on your cast and crew that like aren't as front and center for the show to see them get brought out into the spotlight and, and be recognized is really, really cool because, you know, a TV show, it truly does take a village. It takes so, so many people working so hard to make your, your show. And that's such a, that's such a privilege. Like, Oh, you have this idea. And then all these people come together (laughs) to bring it to to life. Like that's so crazy and and cool and never is lost on me and and you never want those people to feel like their work goes unrewarded or unappreciated so hopefully they knew it before the morning the emmys but i think you know hopefully that was really special and cool for them especially you know like people like carl and hannah getting recognized for their acting when when especially hannah like really hadn't done much of it before like that's that's so cool and such a testament to their talent um i went to ask you about last time i talked to you you had not officially been renewed for season two mm-hmm. but you have now and last time i talked to you about this you guys were extremely vague which i understand <laughs> and i'm sure you still have to be pretty vague but can you say anything about sort of what's what wheels are spinning around season two well uh 
you know, okay, we're going on the road. We know that. You're like, yeah, that's in the episode, Jen. No, no. There is an email to deal with and there's some trouble to get out of. And I think that one thing that hopefully people like about season one is that we, we show a progression of these characters and their growth, but it feels also like real the way it happens in real life. Like, you know, progress is not just a straight line and then it's over and done. And you're like, Oh good. I, I learned that thing. I'm better now. And I'll never make that mistake again. Like as human beings, we're constantly learning and then falling back in old patterns and slipping up and trying to be better the next day. And so Deborah and Ava are definitely both still on those journeys and we are going to see them uh, struggle with those journeys in a very like real and grounded, uh, but funny uh, way. And what else? I think, I think Jimmy and Kayla will be having to visit Barbara and HR after their uh, Las Vegas hotel room experience. So Mm -hmm. I can, I can share that. Um, But I think anything else I'm going to get in trouble if I, if I share Uh, well, I appreciate, I appreciate <laughs> even that. Um, thank you so much for the chat, and I really appreciate it. Oh my gosh, it was so lovely. Thank you for having me. Well, that does it for this week's show. I should say that next week, uh, Joanna and I uh, will be talking with our colleague David Canfield for the first of this year's Little Women Book Club installment. Uh, we're going to talk about Power of the Dog, which is the Thomas Savage novel that Jane Campion is adapting into a movie uh, that's premiering, I believe, at Venice and the Toronto Film Festival and New York Film Festival. It's going to be everywhere. It'll be on Netflix later this year. So um, if you want to read it, it's a it's not a super long read. I got it from my local library. Um, and come join us for the book club. And we'll be we'll have other parts of the show as well. But that's the, that's your homework for next week. Um, and in the meantime, you can find us on VF.com. You can find uh, lots of great writing about the White Lotus. You can uh, find Joanna and Richard talking about White Lotus on Still Watching, of course. Uh, and you can find us on Twitter, at Little Gold Men, and on our own. I am at Katie Rich and Joanna wrote this uh you can also please uh sign up to receive text from us and to text back to us at subtext go to join subtext.com slash little gold men or text 213-401-9739 this week's episode was edited and produced by brett fuchs and this week's award for what richard is doing when he's not on the podcast goes to joanna robinson he sits at his desk and he addresses like youtube comments